Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is the Rare Petro Podcast Network, and of course, it is myself, Tavis Killian, joined by Kevin Olson. How you guys doing? And today, we are bringing you the hottest new episode of Basin Breakdown. For those of you who may not be familiar, it's August, but we will be going over the biggest news in July through eight of some of the most prolific basins out there. So, we've got some news for you. We'll take it basin by basin, and we hope you enjoy it. And we started off like we always do in our neck of the woods in Colorado at the DJ and Niobrera plays. So first of all, Excel has big plans for smart tech. They're trying to roll out smart meters to all of their Colorado customers by 2023. These meters will track household energy consumption in real time and provide the data to Excel, kind of a concept I'm sure most of you are familiar with. They will provide customers with a sharper and more precise picture of their energy usage, allowing Excel to introduce time of use rates, which would charge customers more during peak demand times and less during low use periods, just kind of in the evening, you know, between two and seven, I think are those peak hours, they would charge you more for electricity in hopes that it would make you more mindful. The Colorado Public Utilities Commission has given Excel permission to spend up to Get this, $419 million to install the meters, and this cost will be passed on to their 1.6 million customers that they serve in the state. In addition to relieving a strained grid, it should also serve customers better as outages can be automatically detected. So I like this. I think it makes everyone more conscious of their energy usage. The only thing I think people have to complain about is the fact that, well, you and I are paying for it. Absolutely, but I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that people are going to be more conscious of their energy usage. I don't know about you, but when I see my energy bill at the end of the month, I say, eh, that's about what I would expect. I think it'll be interesting, at least from a personal standpoint, to really understand, you know, when am I using this energy? What am I using it on? And actually, funny enough, we got our letter from Excel last week saying that they were going to be installing these. So it's not if it's going to happen. It's, it's right around the corner here. Up next, Whiting is going to trade the DJ for Williston. To buy Williston Basin assets in North Dakota, Whiting Petroleum agreed to separate definitive agreements worth $458 million and divest all of its oil and gas interest here in the DJ Basin in Colorado. Quote, these two transactions result in a significantly deeper drilling inventory in our key Sanish operating area while divesting of properties in Colorado that we're not going to complete initially for capital, said Lynn A. Peterson, president and CEO of Whiting, in the company release. Nothing strange here. Companies identifying what brings in more cash, what doesn't, and trying new things. Next up, there's been a few key economic reports released lately from a state-level perspective, and one of those shows that oil was responsible for 11.7% of Colorado's 2019 state GDP. According to a new analysis, Colorado's oil and natural gas industry contributed $46.1 billion to the state's gross domestic product in 2019 and supported more than 340,000 workers. Colorado's 2019 GDP totaled $392 billion. Colorado Executive Director of the API, Lynn Granger, says, quote, For decades, the natural gas and oil industry has been a cornerstone of Colorado's economy, and this report underscores the crucial role the industry will play as the state works to rebuild from the devastating impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. Natural gas usage is expected to surpass that of 2019 and 2022, leading to potentially even more benefits for the state. I think this report is super cool. 11.7% of the state's GDP. That's just a huge number. Yeah, it sounds big, but hold on to that number. We'll probably hit something later in the podcast that will shock you even more. 
And moving on up to our neighbors to the north, we're going to talk about the Powder River Basin. On July 8th, Contango Oil & Gas agreed to acquire ConocoPhillips Wind River Basin asset in Wyoming for a cash deal totaling $67 million. ConocoPhillips plans to divest about $10 billion in non-core assets over the next two years following multi-billion dollar acquisition of Concho Resources. Contango's acquisition comes on the heels of KKR's merger agreement with Independence Energy LLC, where KKR plans to use the resulting company pursue all of its upstream oil and gas opportunities. Contango had already set out to become a consolidator of conventional, low-declining oil and gas assets in the U.S. before its merger agreement with Independence. As per the company release, Contango aims to fund the ConocoPhillips deal with cash on hand and credit available under its existing revolving credit line. I mean, I feel like at this point, this is a play we are becoming pretty familiar with. Acquire and then divest so that you can fund that acquisition after the fact. Now, remember that 11.7 I told you to hold on to? Well, the Petroleum Association of Wyoming and the American Petroleum Institute released an economic analysis highlighting just how much of an impact the industry had on the state's income. Wyoming's oil and gas industry contributed $10.6 billion to the state's gross domestic product, which can be roughly equated to 26.3%. Overall, the oil and gas industry supported 68,600 total jobs, 28,300 directly and 40,300 indirectly, or 16.6% of Wyoming's total workforce. The Petroleum Association of Wyoming President Peter Obermuller mentioned, quote, Wyoming's success is intrinsically linked to the natural gas and oil industry. This report brings to light the fact that the industry's reach goes far beyond the well pad and into the main street businesses across Wyoming. In order for Wyoming to see a full recovery, we must see a return to robust production of our natural gas and oil resources. So what I want to highlight here is that both Colorado and Wyoming, it represents a huge portion of the state's GDP. Yes, granted, Colorado was only 11.7 versus Wyoming's 26.3%, but you have to consider the oil and gas industry in Colorado contributed $46 billion to the state, and that was 11%, whereas Wyoming only contributed $10.6 billion. So either way, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars coming from the industry to these states, and I think it's important that these states continue to support and push forward with this industry. Exactly. 10% from Colorado, yeah, that would hurt. But if you lost that 26%, I think Wyoming might as well collapse inward on itself. And we might sound like broken records over here, but we're going to talk about the Energy Rebound Program funding more projects up in Wyoming. In the second phase of the Energy Rebound Program, the Wyoming Oil and Gas Conservation Commission will distribute $12 million in CARES Act money to 216 selected projects. What this program was designed to do is really try to jumpstart those projects that, because of COVID, maybe didn't quite make economic sense, said Ryan McConaughey, Communications Director for the Petroleum Association of Wyoming. 744 of the 864 planned projects filed between June 15th and June 25th were judged eligible for the program. However, the amount of funds available remained the same during that time period. Approximately one-third of the ideas submitted were approved for assistance, and the creators will be compensated for their labor through the end of the year. Even so, many projects cannot be fully funded with the grant up to $500,000. The majority of the enterprises will still have to find the money for any remaining costs on their own. An additional round of the Energy Rebound Program is unlikely due to the state's depleting CARES Act resources. And I know we've talked about this before and our support for it, but 864 projects filed in just 10 days? I like to see how much activity is going on, and I like to see that number of people chomping at the bit 
to get back into business. Exactly. And Wyoming, let's keep this motivation going, even if there's no CARES Act funding. I mean, 26.3% of your state's GDP depends on it. But that wraps things up in this area. And next, we take it down to Texas, where, wow, we've got a lot of news in the Permian, mainly in the form of acquisitions. So I'm going to get those out of the way as quick as I can. First up, Plains All-American Pipeline is looking to merge with privately held Oryx Midstream Holdings, LLC, in order to consolidate a huge portion of the Permian Basin assets. It will create a debt-free joint venture called Plains Oryx Permian Basin, LLC, which the business hopes will produce $50 million in operational savings within the first 12 months and potentially reach over $100 million over time, so plenty of synergy there. The next one... Patterson UTI Energy is buying Pioneer Energy Services for $295 million. The Houston-based driller said the purchase price consists of up to 26,275,000 shares of its ordinary stock and $30 million in cash. Pioneer Energy Services' entire debt will be retired as part of the deal. And then lastly, as part of its acquisition, development, and exploration plan, Grenadier Energy acquired additional finance from longtime partner NCAP Investments LP on July 21st. Grenadier said it will target acquisitions in the lower 48 using a $350 million equity commitment from NCAP that was closed in June and a recent $420 million sale of Midland Basin position to Surge Energy U.S. Holdings Company exemplified the strategy's success, according to the business. Statement from the company's president reads, The team at Grenadier has a track record of purchasing high-quality assets and developing them to establish appealing businesses of scale, so it looks like they'll be funding that with the sale of the Midland Basin assets. I think that wraps up all the biggest deals to go down in the Permian through July. Man, talk about acquisitions and merger mania. Things are getting hot down in Texas. And up next, even though the Biden administration would disagree, Kinder Morgan is recommending another pipeline. Natural gas pipelines might be built in the Permian Basement and Haynesville Shale over the next couple years, according to Kinder Morgan, which sees prospects to fulfill expanding export and industrial demand. According to the CEO of the pipeline company, Stephen Keene, the Permian Basin in West Texas and eastern New Mexico is expected to require another gas pipeline by the middle of the decade. The Permian is the largest oil and gas producing shale field in the United States, and Kinder Morden initially proposed this idea back in 2019 to transport gas from the Permian to the Gulf, but Waha hub prices were sometimes trading negative thanks to drillers who were producing more associated gas than existing infrastructure could handle. And sorry to close it off on a sad note, but Pioneer continues to take massive hedge losses. So in late July, independent Pioneer Natural Resources cautioned that it would be hit by an $832 million Q2 loss on derivatives. Combined with Q1, these losses total about $1.5 billion in net losses from oil contracts in the sense of, no, they're not losing money, but the difference from what they hedged at to what oil's actually worth, yeah, big difference there. The company hedged a significant amount of its portfolio at prices lower than current day, so Q1 hedging losses across U.S. oil firms were expected to face $7 billion in total, according to Inveris. The company's full second quarter earnings were released on August 2nd. And the funny thing is, Tavis and I were nervous about this right when prices kind of started breaking the $60 barrel, and then they were hovering in the 70s for a while. Granted, they're still in the high 60s now, but <laughs> when you're hedging at $40 a barrel, you're going to start seeing some losses. So things were busy in the Permian with mergers and acquisitions, and that doesn't quite change when we make it to the Eagleford, so a quick lightning round going over those as well. First, Texan oil firm Mesquite Energy, which emerged from bankruptcy last year, is considering selling its Katarina Ranch properties in the Eagleford region. 
Divestiture of assets, which cover 100,000 acres, could be a hint to a sale of the company. Katarina Ranch has yet to be marketed by the company, which was known as Sanchez Energy prior to its bankruptcy case, so we'll keep you posted on that one. Second, Mesa 2 makes a new acquisition, which is Mesa Royalty 2 LLC's first acquisition since its establishment with new financial backer NGP on July 8th. The firm acquired a mineral and royalty portfolio in the Haynesville Shale over 15,000 acres. It's estimated that 50% of all currently active drilling permits are centered on the newly purchased land, which should allow the position to continue to have a large cash flow profile for years to come. Kevin, go. <laughs> Up next, it was revealed that Wildfire Energy had entered into definitive agreements to acquire Hankwood Energy LLC, an independent exploration and production firm. According to the agreement, Hankwood's existing shareholders will retain a 50% stake in Wildfire, while the management team and private equity investor Kane Anderson will hold the other 50%. Wildfire Energy's mission is to acquire and optimize oil and gas assets with a high production weighting. Wildfire Energy will remain the name of the combined company and will operate the properties when the deal closes, bringing a significant knowledge in the Eagleford to the table. And finally, Penn Virginia Corporation has agreed to purchase Lone Star Resources U.S. in an all-stock transaction valued at around $370 million. Upon the acquisition of Lone Star, Penn Virginia aims to boost its inventory sites by 50% to 750 gross outlets. Besides the projected annual synergies of over $20 million, Penn Virginia stated that the purchase will enhance projected 2021 free cash flow per share by nearly 30%. Additionally, the company anticipates that the greater scale will allow for additional consolidation opportunities in the future. And time, I think that is our fastest run through of the Eagleford yet, excluding those times when there was absolutely no news. But that wraps things up for Texas, and next we're going to take it to Oklahoma and the Scoopstack Basins, where there are new records for the Oklahoma Treasury. Treasury receipts for June and the fiscal year ending in June 30th both set new records. The increase is largely due to a federal repayment of more than $10 billion to Oklahomans in response to the pandemic, as well as the timing of income tax payment deadlines. Furthermore, collections from oil and gas production taxes have quadrupled since June of 2020 when payments fell to a record low due to oil prices, so it's kind of like playing basketball with a bunch of three-foot-tall children, but it's a good record to beat nonetheless. Up next, Oklahoma is seeking opportunities in hydrogen. Members of Governor Stitt's cabinet are working hard to form alliances with the Biden administration that will benefit Oklahoma. The congressional delegation of Oklahoma has been outspoken about its opposition to the Biden administration's energy policy. Nonetheless, the energy secretary sees a great opportunity for renewable growth. A task force formed during the last legislative section at the state capitol to investigate future hydrogen production is set to meet for the first time next week. And I think this is kind of cool. You know, energy being such a big focus of Oklahoma, and they're really trying to work with the Biden administration to say, hey, you know, let's start looking into this new technology to bring more opportunities to our state. Like we say time and time again, all energy is good energy. It's all about having that balanced portfolio. And who knows, that portfolio could grow because Oklahoma is in talks with Azerbaijan for who knows what. Governor Kevin Stitt was on a week-long trip to Baku, Azerbaijan to quote, promote and expand Oklahoma's strategic partnerships with Azerbaijan, end quote, according to his office. The Southern Caucasus nation on the Caspian Sea has an oil and gas economy that is fueled by tourism and agribusiness, all of which Oklahoma has been long involved in or is looking to expand in. 
The Oklahoma National Guard visited Azerbaijan in 2002, kicking off a relationship that lasted until 2019 when Oklahoma State University and Azerbaijan State Agricultural University signed a Memorandum of Understanding to jointly develop academic programs and facilitate student and faculty exchanges. What a wild exchange program that would be. Absolutely, but I think it's kind of cool. You know, use all the resources you can, and building relationships can only help a business, nonetheless a state. And up next, we have our favorites down in California. As a hot and dry summer rages on in California, there are increased risks of blackouts, and California Power Grid Manager is taking emergency measures to secure extra electricity. In anticipation of regional-wide heat waves that will significantly increase electricity demand, the California Independent System Operator is soliciting power producers across the West to sell more megawatts to the state in July and August. The California Independent System Operator stated that the power supplies are lower than expected due to decreases in hydroelectric generation caused by ongoing drought conditions, power plant outages, and delays in bringing new generation sources online. And I think they'll have plenty of people who are happy to sell them energy at a very high price, but as we get further into these really hot months... You look at the West, there's plenty of wildfires, there's plenty of people who are hot record temps. It might not be a question of willingness, but actually supply and ability to sell it. So as these hot months continue to drag on, we will keep you updated on the drought conditions and also the electricity generation conditions down in California. Next, the Biden administration is, well, looking to decommission California rigs, but nobody's too surprised with that. They announced in July that they will conduct a programmatic environmental analysis of the effects of decommissioning oil and gas drilling platforms, pipelines, and wells off the coast of Southern California. The announcement marks the beginning of the process to permanently terminate all offshore oil and gas operations at eight platforms and remove these platforms and their associated pipelines from the ocean. I wonder if they're going to include in this environmental review the habitats that these platforms create for wildlife. And if you don't know much about that, Google it. I was going to recommend you go to our website, but we don't have anything up yet. I'm going to add that to my list of content. So be sure to not only subscribe to this podcast, but follow Rare Petro on LinkedIn and maybe sign up for those email updates as well so you don't miss that piece because that's definitely going to be interesting. And finally, CalGEM, the state's oil and gas regulatory agency, announced that it had declined all 21 of Era Energy's applications for fracking operations in California, citing risks to public health and safety, environmental quality, and climate change under regulatory statutes. This comes shortly after a report announcing that the amount of hydraulic fracturing in the state may have been severely underreported as a justification for banning it in the state. The conspiracy theorist inside of me has something to say about those two seemingly coincidental events. Did somebody say Illuminati confirmed? Whether or not they are, I say we move it over to the Marcellus Basin, where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled last month that the state government violated the Constitution when it transferred hundreds of millions of dollars from leasing large tracts of state forests for Marcellus Shale gas drilling to fill state budget gaps in 2009 and 2010. The 4-3 decision effectively ends governors and the legislature's use of natural gas wealth beneath publicly owned conservation lands for general government spending, which, I don't know, kind of sounds like a no-brainer to me. You see, Pennsylvania, this is why we don't have nice things. And up next, we're going to talk about getting hot. Radioactive, that is. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection announced that all landfills that accept solid fracking waste will now be required to test their leachate, or liquid waste, for radioactive minerals common in oil and gas waste. 
Landfills frequently send leachate, a liquid waste formed when rainwater seeps through waste piles, to treatment plants. They examine it for a variety of potential pollutants, however, they have never had to test it for radium, a radioactive material commonly found in oil and gas waste. I think this is probably a good idea because, hey, if radium in large quantities is finding its way into water, well, then maybe we should do a little something about that. Absolutely, but we also do have to consider the norm, the normally occurring radioactive materials. So I think it's absolutely fine that they're needing to test these, but... It's easy to misunderstand it, read this headline, and be scared. <laughs> absolutely. And then lastly, Pennsylvania extracted record amounts during the COVID pandemic. What do I mean by that? Well, drillers in Pennsylvania produced the most natural gas in a single year on record in 2020. Last year, unconventional wells produced 7.1 trillion cubic feet of gas, despite national and regional natural gas prices falling in response to the pandemic, which, if you've looked recently, is a very different story this year. Last year, 476 of the 527 new wells drilled in Pennsylvania were unconventional gas-focusing wells. From 787 new wells in 2019, that number of new wells is down, so it's really cool how they found ways to produce more. And I think that's just a testament to Pennsylvania itself and the innovation that we're seeing in that area to really uncover these unconventional resources. And that ends things up and around Pennsylvania. Next, we'll take it to North Dakota, where, unsurprisingly, they sued the feds. <laughs> in a move that we've become all too familiar with lately, North Dakota is suing the federal government, alleging that the Interior Department and the Bureau of Land Management illegally canceled oil and gas lease auctions in the state. The complaint filed late July 7th in the United States District Court for the District of North Dakota Western Division claimed the federal agency's cancellation of auctions in March and June cost the state $80 million in lost revenue. And I don't know, what is this, like the 20th state to do this at this point? Absolutely, but I think they have a good point. I mean, lease cancellations are a huge part of North Dakota's income source, Wyoming's. I mean, we've seen this time and time again, but I think that it's interesting that they have a concrete number now. $80 million in lost revenue from cancellations in March and June alone. That's absurd. And as we saw from other states, that goes right back into some of the communities could be responsible for a lot of the state's GDP. So these are significant numbers to mess with. But also, I think the feds are probably just kicking the can down the road because recently, what, Interior Secretary Deb Haaland said that, what, it's going to be finished soon. So I think it'll likely lock things up in court and they'll wait until the actual review is finished. And speaking of finishing, the North Bakken Expansion Project in northern North Dakota began construction this week, according to the CEO of MDU Resources Group, and will help producers reduce flaring in the region. The new natural gas pipeline will be able to transport 250 million cubic feet of natural gas from the Bakken formation. According to a July 19th release from MDU Resources, WBI Energy Incorporation, which is a subsidiary of MDU Resources, received a notice to proceed from the FERC on July 8th, allowing construction to begin, and hopefully, who knows, maybe it'll be finished by the end of the summer. <laughs> maybe. Next, on July 22nd, the United States Department of Transportation's pipeline regulator issued a notice to the operator of the DAPL, Energy Transfer LP, for possible violations of safety regulations and proposed a civil penalty against it. The Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, or PHMSA, released a notice that listed probable violations ranging from the location of stormwater drainage at six pipeline facilities to failure to follow assessment guidelines relating to potential incidents in sensitive areas where the pipeline operates. 
In June, a U.S. district court dismissed a long-running case against the DAPL, a 570,000-barrel-per-day pipeline from North Dakota that runs beneath the Missouri River Reservoir, but allowed Native American tribes and other opponents of the pipeline to file additional lawsuits. So, nothing new here. I mean, even when I first got into school at Mines, we'd been talking about this, and that was, what, 2016, so... Absolutely. The Keystone, this Keystone XL pipeline has been nothing but a headache for the Dakota Access Pipeline, energy transfer, and really the state itself. So the Keystone XL pipeline lawsuits, it's just becoming the norm in North Dakota. But ladies and gentlemen, that does bring us to, unfortunately, the end of this podcast. Yes, I know our time together always goes too fast, but if you're looking for more, Kevin and I have months of these recorded in the past. Other podcasts, periodicals as well, and you can find them all on this page, whatever podcast app you're listening to, or you can go to rarepetro.com to look through our library there. So plenty of stuff to keep you busy. Thanks for tuning in, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. And stay cool out there. 